0: Well, good morning. Um, It's very good to see everybody this morning, like Cody said. And it is a very particularly special and encouraging morning with Stephen being here this morning. Um, I went to pick up Stephen this morning and was very overcome with emotion when Stephen got in the car. Um, I don't know if everybody really knows this, but Stephen, to be with the church, um, there's a lot of things that. He's had to sacrifice and overcome to make the decision to be here this morning. And it's, it's just particularly encouraging when you know that somebody is making a real sacrifice and denying themselves to do what God wants them to do and to do it out of love. Um, there's many prayers answered. And with the theme of this lesson, we're dealing with Ephesians 4, and that really um, is related to our theme of walking worthy of our calling. A lot of times the idea of a calling is emphasized in the world and it's emphasized in a way that uh, is ambiguous but still accurate. Um, It's referred to as something that really gives us a sense of meaning, passion, impact. It's where we see we can fulfill what seems to be our purpose in life or where we can use our talents that we seem to have been given and use those things effectively, and really it's in the church, it's in the kingdom of God when all of that is, is realized, where our talents that we've been given by God can be utilized to the degree they were given for. We looked at a few weeks ago, Ephesians 4 verse 7, every single person in the church has been given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, in immeasurable grace that is just waiting to be used in the service of Christ's cause. And so we've talked about verses 1 through 13 up to this point. And we're in the latter section of where we're going to see unity being emphasized in Ephesians 4. But our calling is both individual and congregational. Just like marriage, there's a sense where God in salvation, we've already attained to a degree of unity, just as people who get married have already attained to a covenantal unity by God's work. But in that unity, there there needs to be a a work to maintain what's been given, what's been attained. So in Ephesians verses 2 and 3, Ephesians 4 verses 2 and 3, we're told what we need to do to preserve, to maintain the unity that we've been given. And then we're also in this section told that we need to grow in that unity. We need to be attaining to the fullness of that unity. Just like in marriage, when a couple gets married, The work of unity, really, although it's been fulfilled, it's just begun. In the same way, as a church, as a body of Christ, wherever there are people who need to grow, who need to grow in knowledge, who need to grow in godliness, there's going to be more work that needs to be done to grow in our unity together to the fullness of Christ. So you'll see that the title of this lesson this morning is in verses 14 and 15, Unity and Maturity in Truth. And so we're going to be looking at two verses and just looking at the importance of having unity and maturity in the truth. So just to kind of reflect on on verses 1 through 3 here, just remember that we're urged by the work of God, by the love of God, by the glory of everything we've been given by God to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace one of the things that's a reality of unity there are always going to be challenges in preserving and growing in unity there's always going to be challenges but as much as that's a reality it is also a reality that we are overwhelmingly equipped by the grace of God to overcome and confront every challenge and continue to grow in our unity despite the challenges that exist in, in maintaining and growing in it so verses 14 and 15 let's read these verses and we'll begin the lesson as a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by craftiness in deceitful scheming but speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even christ so the first point of the lesson is we need to be pressing on to maturity, and that is just a constant theme. It is an anthem of the New Testament. Jesus was constantly working with his disciples to bring them to maturity. The, the New Testament epistles, the letters we read in the New Testament, are constantly emphasizing the need to grow in maturity. Jesus taught that we need to be converted and become like children. This is not the kind of childlikeness that Jesus was encouraging when he taught that we need to become like children. First principle is children are gullible and naive. Children are easily convinced of things that aren't real. Uh, for instance, my brother and my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law is from Japan and my uh, niece and nephew, they're scared of a Japanese creature called Onisan, And Onisan is kind of like this scary creature that dwells in darkness and it's it's not real, but it's like this Japanese you know, myth or, or fictional, fictional character that, that scares kids. And you know, when, they, when they hear about Oni-san, they respond as if Oni-san is actually a real creature that can potentially harm them. But again, it's not real. And as adults, we think about that, and we think, well, that's that's silly. You know, children oftentimes have imaginary friends or can be told things that are, that are obviously not real. And children are just they're, they're gullible, and that's, that's just how children are. But children are also naive about life. They don't understand the grittiness of reality. They're not equipped to deal with the dangers of life. And they need to be taught and helped diligently to understand danger. For instance, what's a very common thing parents teach their children about strangers? Don't talk to strangers. I remember years ago seeing a a news... um, a news test with what they were doing is they were taking these parents of young toddlers and they were putting them through a test just to kind of try to make a point where they were having the parents consent to having the newscast um, try to have somebody who is a hired actor uh, approach their child at a park and see if their child would follow him to his vehicle. And this was to make the point that, you know, parents really need to be diligent to make sure their children really understand, you do not follow strangers. And it was interesting that parents who had taught that to their children, their children still very easily were persuaded to go right along with this person and follow him to his vehicle. And it was startling to see the panic in the parents', in the parents eyes when they would talk to their kids afterward and said, you do not follow strangers. We are not to be like that in the kingdom of God. We are not to be naive about life. We're not to be gullible with teaching and doctrine. We need to be settled on matters that God has spoken on. We need to be settled on our source of authority. But we don't just need to be settled on certain matters at the expense of others. Everything that God has spoken on, we need to be settled, stable, stable and steadfast in constantly trying to develop a greater appreciation for matters of teaching instruction and command hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 if you'll turn in your bibles there um, this isn't something that just relates to new christians here in hebrews we recently went through this entire letter in our sunday afternoon assemblies when we were meeting before the coronavirus and these were christians who had been christians for a very long time and in chapter 5 at the end he tells them that they've gone back to being children they're not mature they ought to be teachers but instead they need milk like children need milk because they're not accustomed to the word of righteousness and they needed to be told again we need to press on to maturity and so that's really the first question I want to uh, point to you in the text here Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14 says we must no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and different doctrines, but we need to be growing. Are you pressing on to maturity? If you were to be confronted with that statement in Hebrews 6 verse 1, let's press on to maturity. If you were personally confronted with that that, uh, anthem, would you agree and say, that's right, I do need to be pressing on to maturity. And is growth evident in your life? Just as people who discipline themselves for things in the world This is people press themselves to grow and develop in their knowledge of subjects in the world or careers in the world or hobbies in the world. Are you applying that discipline to your faith to develop in maturity in your faith? We need to learn to view sin and false teaching the way that Jesus and the New Testament writers viewed them. You know, somebody who kidnaps children may in other contexts of their lives be very friendly, um, another thing that I've, I've heard in the past from news broadcasts, um, it's, it's interesting how commonly a murderer will be referred to as their neighbors as a very pleasant person usually. And it's just surprising that this person was capable of such grotesque and incredible acts of evil because when they talked to him, he was just so approachable and friendly. New Testament writers, when they refer to false teachers, it is with the most harsh terms and language in my experience and yours may be different in my experience brethren give way too much leniency way too much credit to people who are teaching direct false doctrine but otherwise are teaching other good things that can be viewed as well that's not too bad I, I can follow that we need to learn to see things the way that Jesus leads us to see them in Ephesians 4, no matter what you may think about a person's sincerity, the source of false teaching is exactly as it's said in Ephesians 4, verse 14, when he says that every wind of doctrine and wave, and we'll get more into that in the next point, but look at what he's saying this comes from. This comes from craftiness and deceitful scheming. Satan tries to make false doctrine look as appealing, as palatable, and as good as he can possibly make it look. He's been doing that from the beginning. Do you remember with Eve, the conversation that Satan had with Eve, his one goal was to change her perspective about that fruit that God said not to touch. And to change her perspective, to see it as something beautiful and palatable, something good that's to be approachable. We need to learn to see that despite what we may think about people and the innocence of people, False teaching is derived from an incredibly corrupt source. And someone may be otherwise teaching things that are good, but false teaching itself is a corruptible and atrocious thing that comes from a deceptive source. We need to see things the way the New Testament writers saw them, and that's a part of maturity. In Hebrews, throughout the letter we looked at in the sermon series on Hebrews, the Hebrew writer doesn't play around in his warnings about their condition or their sin. He tells them that those who are falling away from God and drifting are in danger of crucifying the Son of God again to themselves and putting him to open shame, that they are insulting the spirit of grace and trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God. The writer of the Hebrew letter was gracious toward the reader, but he did not play around with sin and the realities of sin. And this was to awaken them in a reverent way, to the condition that they were drifting into. The next point is we need to be maturing in doctrine. So we need to be taking doctrine seriously. We need to understand the nature of false doctrine and see the way that it's it's spoken of in in the New Testament. But what is is doctrine? I think sometimes that word can be um, too ambiguous, not really clear. But doctrine is just teaching instruction and commandments. And doctrine really isn't something that's difficult to understand. There are some instructions in the New Testament where you can kind of struggle with trying to figure, okay, well, how do I I apply this? What do I do with this? And some of those things require good conversation and study among brethren. But suffice it to say, where there is teaching and instruction, God is not trying to confuse us. Instruction of doctrine is not the same as the book of Revelation. And we need to love the clarity that comes with sound doctrine. We have to also realize that in dealing with the grittiness of life, we live in a postmodern culture, which is not something new. And when I use the term postmodern, what I mean is, postmodernism is the idea that there's no such thing as objective truth. Meaning there's no such thing as something that's true no matter what. That ultimately truth is determined by how I see things. Truth is determined by what I prefer, what I say, but that's not the nature of God's doctrine. Sound doctrine is true in every culture and every time. Sound doctrine is something that is healthy, that brings healing to the heart, that clarifies, that converts. Sound doctrine's effect is always good and righteous altogether, just as it was worded in Psalm 19 by David. So sound doctrine, there's some things that I think we need to understand about this concept of not being children who are tossed around by, uh, by false doctrine. Sound doctrine is not based in what is convenient or relevant. Oftentimes when somebody is seeking for, for truth, they're looking, they're looking for something that's convenient. They're looking for something that's most relevant. But is something true and is sound doctrine true, even if the only people who are practicing it look nothing like me, talk nothing like me, have no background that's similar to mine, and I have very little in a worldly way that I can relate to them on. Sound doctrine is not based on what is convenient or what is relevant. In fact, sound doctrine will oftentimes be inconvenient and seem irrelevant. It won't seem like sound doctrine is solving the most immediate issue of my life oftentimes, but in reality, sound doctrine is always the solution. Sound doctrine is not based in culture, time, or circumstance. Uh, but sound doctrine is something that's oftentimes countercultural. You see, even in the Jewish culture in the first century in the book of Acts, Christians who were among those who worshipped the same God were being persecuted and put to death for, the, for their faith in Jesus. Christians in the book of Acts had a habit of getting into good trouble. They were those who didn't submit to the cultural uh, the cultural views or practices when they contradicted their faith in Christ, and time is not a determination of truth. Different things get thought of at different times in the world. There's different ideologies and philosophies and way of thinking. There's different pressures that come with circumstance, but sound doctrine does not yield to the pressures of circumstance. Sound doctrine is not determined by the relevance of our time. Sound doctrine doesn't get out of date just because the majority refused to see its relevance in our time today. It's also not based on a person or a local church. And what I mean by that is no one person is themselves a perfect source of truth. I'm not a perfect source of truth. My my teaching from God's Word always needs to be tested and checked with God's Word. Nobody's exempt from being wrong and needing correction. You remember Peter in Galatians chapter 2. Even Peter, who had been an apostle for decades who had been with Jesus, who had been teaching the truth. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul the apostle needed to confront Peter about a very fundamental thing that he was misrepresenting. And Paul even said he perceived he stood condemned. No one person is of themselves a source of truth and neither is a local church. And even by that, my background, my background or my history, no matter what I may think about my history, My background is not a determination of what is true. When I'm studying with people, oftentimes when we're having a Bible study, one of the most difficult things is for somebody to disassociate from all the things in their background that they've presumed were true without carefully checking with God's Word to make sure it was doctrine that conforms to godliness and truth in God's Word. And getting them to understand that no matter what somebody taught in the background, no matter what affection they have or connections they have, that is still not itself a determination of truth or sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is based in Jesus, his apostles, and prophets. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It's talking about the church and those who are a part of God's household, that they have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Sound doctrine is based in Jesus, in Jesus who is unchanging, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And remember in Hebrews 13 where that is spoken, it follows it by saying don't be carried away by a varied and strange doctrine. Jesus is unchanging. His apostles, the message of the apostles, is written for us to have timelessly before us in God's word and the prophets. Those who lived in the time of the apostles who were given the gift of Of speaking God's Word in a very direct and revealed way. What we have in God's Word is spoken of as the complete and final revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to understand the authority of Christ. We need to understand how to look for answers in the Bible. How to ensure that what we're practicing in our worship and in our personal lives is coming from the authority of Jesus. That we're looking for clear commands to direct us in our living And as a congregation that we're looking for examples of what we see practiced in the new testament and necessary conclusions of what we understand we need to do based in still what's written and clear in god's word and finally because sound doctrine is based in jesus john 14 verse 15 simply says if you love me you'll keep my commandments and oftentimes the cart is put ahead of the horse The emphasis can be on, well, we have to obey. You know, we have to keep his commandments. And if we keep his commandments, we love him. And that's true. But ultimately, the foundation of our love and respect for Jesus and whether or not we truly love Jesus and revere him, that will determine our devotion to his doctrine. If I love Jesus and stand in awe of him, if I've truly been humbled by the work that he's done to redeem my soul, that will be the determination of my passion for his word and his command and his instruction. In 2 Peter chapter 1, a book dedicated to false teaching and truth, he begins by saying, if we're not growing in maturity, then we've become blind, short-sighted, and forgetful, having forgotten our purification from our former sins. The emphasis is: if you are not striving to cling to Christ and the things of his will, it's because your love and your respect for him has diminished. If you're still in Ephesians, Notice how everything is centered on Christ and growing specifically in our closeness with Christ, our knowledge of him. Verse 13, the reason why we, we want to be unified and grow in our unity is because we want to grow in the knowledge of the Son of God. We want to grow to the fullness of the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In verse 15, why do we speak the truth in love? Because we want to grow in all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. So, if we love Jesus, we want to make sure everything we do is respecting the love that he's shown us, the glory of his holiness apart from us, and the reality that our wisdom does not amount to the wisdom of God. Something simple, why do we not use instruments in our worship? Why don't we have a piano or a drum set or an electric guitar? I'm sure that there's brethren here who know how to play a guitar or a piano. There's a reason why we don't do that. Because instruments of music in that capacity are not found in the New Testament. We're told in Colossians chapter 3 verse 19 that we need to be singing and making melody with our hearts and teaching one another with our words as we sing. And so as is a practice of our congregation, all of these things we're doing, we're not doing by accident or presumption. We are striving to do everything in a way that's based in the word of God. And everything is open for discussion. We are open to being questioned. We want to be questioned because we want to have a love of the truth. And that truth is not inherently based in ourselves. It is based in scripture and based in Christ. So we need to mature in speaking the truth. And this is a point that I want to spend a little more time on. Because the opposite of being carried around by different doctrines and different Uh, ways of seeing seeing christ in his will is speaking the truth in love so that we can grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even christ i think it can be easy to look at truth in maybe too narrow a way what i mean by that is when i thought about this idea of speaking the truth in love usually i'll think about it simply in the form of correction that when i think about speaking the truth in love what i'll think about is when i rebuke somebody or correct somebody I've got to make sure it's loving. That I can't just give them God's word, I've got to make sure my intentions are sincere. And that is completely right, that's true. But that's not the only component of speaking the truth in love. Truth is a language to be learned. Different cultures, different kingdoms have different languages. I've been to Japan, and in Japan, pretty much nobody spoke English. And I'm trying to learn Spanish with with John, he's uh, trying to help me to learn Spanish, um, and Spanish is a language that I didn't grow up with, so it takes time to learn, I have to expose myself to someone like John who can speak it fluently, I need to read things that are in Spanish to expose myself to the language, I need to hear Spanish, and I need to recognize that it's a process that I need to be very patient in, and I'm probably going to struggle to speak the language in the perfect way. And this is what we see with Jesus. Jesus spoke the language of truth. Everything that Jesus said was speaking the truth in love. Even when Jesus was not directly quoting scripture, even when he was not correcting someone of a false idea they had about him or his kingdom, Jesus was always speaking the language of truth. We're reading John on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. And something we're going to see a lot in John, we're going to see people being very confused by Jesus' words. Even though Jesus is saying things very clearly, people are still going to be struggling with, what what is he saying? I don't understand. Because Jesus, in a way, was speaking a different language. Even his disciples would struggle to understand what he was saying. But he was working with them to help them to learn his language. The culture of the kingdom is a culture of truth. The language of of the kingdom is a language of truth. I want to look at Mark chapter 10 verses 17 through 22. Before you go there though, uh, look at Ephesians 4 verse 21. Um, this is a verse that I wanted to associate with the idea of truth being a language that we need to learn. Ephesians 4 verse 21, note the last part of this verse when it's talking about putting away the old man and putting on the new. He says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in jesus jesus is the language of truth so now turn to mark chapter 10 verse 17 through 22 if we want to learn what it means to speak the truth in love or we want to see illustrations of that what better place to go than to jesus himself and this specific place in mark gives an insight into this interaction that is actually only found in mark and this is a very rare thing Usually, we're not given Jesus' intentions uh, very often in things that he did because we can well assume that everything that Jesus did was done in love, that he was always acting in the betterment of others. But here, we're given a very careful insight that when Jesus says what he says here, Jesus felt a love for him. Or other translations will say, Jesus, loving him, said. So we know that Jesus here explicitly was speaking the truth in love let's start in verse 17 and read verse 17 uh, 17 through 19 as he was setting out on a journey a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him good teacher what shall i do to inherit eternal life and jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except god alone you know the commandments do not murder do not commit adultery do not steal do not bear false witness do not defraud honor your father and mother And then in verse 20, he again calls him teacher. But verse 18, there's something that seems very subtle that I think is actually extremely important. That Jesus with his words, I have on the board here that Jesus did not allow himself to be inappropriately exalted, but that might be maybe too wordy a way to say it. Jesus with his words represented himself appropriately. Jesus would not allow himself to be misrepresented. For instance, Jesus would oftentimes call himself, most commonly, not son of God, but son of man. And although when Jesus would say son of man, that may be a reference to his deity based in the book of Daniel chapter 7, but in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is called the son of man. So it's not that son of man is exclusively and only a reference to deity. think when Jesus referred to himself as the son of man he is embracing the truest essence of the human condition that if anybody was going to live in the truth of the human condition Jesus was living in the truth of the human condition and what Jesus recognizes about the rich young ruler is the rich young ruler is exalting Jesus in an inappropriate way you're calling me good teacher but that's not an appropriate designation. There's only one who is good, and that's God alone. And I have as a reference here 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. When he was with the Corinthians who were struggling with exalting people inappropriately, saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and following men instead of following Christ, he says, I was with you in fear and in weakness and in much trembling. Paul the Apostle did not allow himself to be misrepresented as independently strong. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10, he reflects on how God spoke to him that his grace is perfected in weakness. Therefore, he would most rather, most gladly rather boast in weakness rather than personal strength. Paul spoke the truth in love. He represented himself in the essence of the true human condition, and his words reflected that appropriately. Just a a personal illustration that maybe can help with the importance of that. Many of you uh, have met Malvin, um, but Malvin uh, is still a very new Christian. And one time I was riding in my car with Malvin and he was opening up to me about some things that he was really struggling with, really feeling like he was having a hard time feeling stable and feeling like he, he really has a grasp on things. And when I was trying to tell him, like, hey, I I struggle too. You know, like, what what you're saying is just a reality of something that unifies us. Here's what Melvin said. He looked at me and he said, well, you hide it very well. And what that told me is, I am misrepresenting my condition. Uh, I was studying with somebody else just this week and they said the same thing. It said, Brian, it doesn't really seem like you have any struggles or any struggles of doubt or anything. And again, what that put into my mind is I'm not representing the essence of the weakness of the condition that I'm in as Jesus did as well. And we'll see that further in the next, next part. We're going to look at one more illustration of Jesus's life. But in chapter 10, verses 21, in Jesus's response, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. First thing is that Jesus was willing to have a hard, but it was a necessary conversation. Jesus spoke the truth in love here. He didn't directly quote scripture. This wasn't some Old Testament verse that he was throwing at him that demanded that he do this. But Jesus was having a necessary conversation difficult conversation and the way that the ruler responded didn't determine whether or not jesus said this in love oftentimes when we speak the truth or we have a hard conversation somebody's negative response can make me think well i did something wrong well it's good to reflect it's good to think well were my intentions really what they needed to be was that really what should have been said you know we had to approach things carefully and prayerfully We really need to be seeking wisdom when we're challenging each other to think about some hard things. But just because the response isn't what we wish it was does not mean that truth was not spoken in love. Jesus was willing to have a hard but necessary conversation. Truth is not just when we're directly quoting scripture, but it is that our conversation is coming out of our faith in God and his word. That Jesus was speaking because of his love for God. Jesus was helping this person have a better appreciation for his relationship with God. Jesus was seeking growth. You know, Jesus was a friend to people. And I would argue you cannot be a better friend to a person than Jesus was. Jesus was the greatest friend anybody could have. But in that friendship, he was constantly pushing growth. Jesus was constantly concerned about helping the people around him develop a deeper relationship with god striving to help people to be confronted with even in look at verse 21 the one thing what if we're lacking just one thing jesus was concerned about even that one thing and think about verse 22 do you think jesus understood that this conversation was going to be a risk Jesus feeling a love for this person, I imagine he really wanted to be unified with this person. But he wanted that friendship to be based in unity and the truth. Unity for understanding how worthy God is and not being deceived by preconceived expectations or self-justifying ideas about a person's relationship with God. So we need to work on having meaningful conversations. Talking about the elephant in the room. We need to be trying to have conversations with each other that even when we're not studying directly, we're still speaking as if we're speaking the oracles of God. That we're bringing the gospel and we're bringing Christ into everyday conversation and not just conversations that happen in the context of a direct Bible study. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 38. This will be the only other illustration we'll look at here from Jesus' life. But Jesus wasn't just willing to have hard conversations. You know, he didn't just point out difficult things and challenge people in that kind of way. Jesus was also uncomfortably honest about his own condition as well. Look at Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 38. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation, for the Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Jesus expressed the reality of the condition of his heart even though it was shocking. I imagine the disciples had no idea what to do with that. And they had no idea what to expect. I mean, what, what's coming next? I imagine this took them off guard. It may have been very overwhelming. It mentions in other places that they fell asleep from sorrow. You know, they didn't understand how to handle this. But Jesus did it even though it wasn't reciprocated. We need to lower our expectations for others to be speaking the truth to us. We need to raise our personal expectations that I'm just going to do it even if it's not reciprocated. I'm going to be genuine with others and honest about where I'm at even if somebody I'm telling doesn't understand what to do with that and they don't reciprocate the way that I wish they would. Jesus was trying to bring them into the reality of his condition even when that was difficult. This is such an important application of Luke chapter 6 verse 35. Give and hope for nothing in return. I know Jesus wanted them to have compassion. I don't think Jesus was only doing this for their sake. But as hard as it was, he truly was alone. And at a time of his greatest need, he could not find any comfort from his closest friends. But I think there's a powerful lesson again that Jesus took the initiative, and that was a powerful thing. Contrast this to Peter. just Literally just before this, Jesus is in so many words saying, Peter, you're not as strong as you think you are. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter says, no, I'm going to die with you. That's definitely not going to happen. Peter, by all appearances, Peter Looks pretty strong here. Peter was self-affirming. He wasn't emotionally collapsing in the Garden of Gethsemane. So by all appearances, Peter looks like the one who's stable. Jesus looks like he's on the brink of collapse and total failure. And yet, when the time of testing comes, who is the one who endured? Who is the one whose faith was steady and they weren't carried by their circumstances? They weren't tossed around by intimidation. Jesus, because he was honest in his condition, he was the one who endured. Let me tell you one of the scariest things that can happen to a Christian, and it's one of the most alarming things to see. It is the most alarming thing when it is obvious that something is wrong in someone's faith. It's obvious that they're drifting and that they are making no steps of recovery. And no matter what you say, no matter the conversations you have, in their perspective, everything's okay. Nothing's wrong. No openness, no weakness expressed, no request for prayers. And when sin is born out of that self-deception and fear of exposure, somebody who isn't expressing the condition of their need when it's easy, when sin is born and habits are made in that, how likely will it be that they're going to open up when it gets worse? Peter was putting himself in a scary position and he failed catastrophically because he was unwilling to be as open and honest as Jesus was. I want to ask you a very serious question. Are you being open with others about where you really are? Because speaking the truth in love is essential for our unity. How can we have unity if we don't even know the reality of where we are in our relationship with God? There's going to be a lot of applications we're going to see throughout chapter 4, but this is one of the most core applications of unity. We need to be genuine with each other. And we need to be honest about where we are even when that exposure is difficult jesus said something shocking and i want you to understand jesus was able to be so honest because of the assurance he had in god's grace the more clearly we understand the mercy of god the more comfortable we are exposing ourselves that i don't have to come off as somebody strong i don't have to come off as somebody who never has any faults or has no ability to fall into sin because God's grace gives me a net of safety to just admit I struggle you know and even I in our marriage the lens has been brought even closer as I'm sure everybody who's married can empathize with we've had to have a lot of conversations about things in my heart that have not been in their right place sins that I've committed in the beginning of our marriage that we've had to have very difficult conversations about we need to see God's grace in a way that doesn't make us fear exposure but rather embrace it a couple of applications and we'll conclude the lesson this is really getting to the heart of the issue Um, but if truth is not in our heart it's certainly not going to come out of our mouth jesus said what fills a man's heart will come out of his mouth what fills the heart the mouth speaks if scripture is not in our hearts it's not going to come out of our words we just need to see the value of something as simple as memorizing Scripture. We need to see the value of having Scripture continuously guiding us and guiding our decisions. Consider Scriptures that challenge and call you to grow where you are. We just talked about husbands. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way and show her honor. Well, let me not misquote that. You likewise, husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker and show her honor As a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Understanding that scripture and memorizing that scripture exposes flaws. It's like James, where it talks about a man looking intently at the law of liberty and the flaws of his facial uh, condition are exposed, but he walks away and just immediately forgets what kind of person he was. We need to memorize scriptures that challenge us, we need to memorize scriptures that call us to grow. We need to memorize scriptures that we know are going to call us to make difficult changes in our way of thinking about the people around us and serving the people around us. Memorize scripture. Consider your weaknesses. Where in your faith, if you're being honest, where in your faith do you need the most help? I guarantee you there is word from God that will help you grow in that if you're willing to be open about it. Secondly and finally, being genuine and open with God in prayer leads to us being genuine and open with each other as well the reality is truth is not a natural language we have to learn that language with difficulty just like learning spanish i don't inherently know spanish i have to apply myself and be deliberate about it in the psalms there's such genuineness in the psalms that i have a hard time relating to because i see it's greater than my genuineness in my prayers with god and the less open i am with god in prayer the less open I'm going to be with my brethren. If my interactions with God are shallow, my interactions with others will certainly follow suit. If we really want to speak the truth in love, we need to get to the heart of the matter, that I need to be more open with God in my prayers. I need to have more passion for pouring out my soul before the Lord, as is the habit of the righteous we see in God's word. I need to be honest with God about my faults. I need to be asking God to help me to understand my weaknesses. And I need to have greater assurance. Greater praise needs to be given for the grace that leads to comfort when weakness is clearly seen and we are exposed and are put into a position where we see that we need grace so badly. So that's the lesson for this morning. I hope that those things have, have been helpful and encouraging. We need to be a people of truth, not just explicit factual truth, but we need to be the most genuine of people. We're all coming out of hypocrisy. We've all been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness where our minds were filled with lies. And we're struggling to understand how to speak this new language. And we're working together. But let's strive to press to maturity together. If there's anything that you need or that we can do for you this morning, please consider that and bring it forward as we stand and sing an invitation song.